I can't emphasize enough the therapeutic value of a home. People do better in a home. Uh, we see time and time again folks that have, are dealing with really complex issues, trauma in their lives, mental health issues, and we get them into housing, and for the first time in their lives, they stabilize. Welcome to Un Uninformed. This is Sean Seavey. And this is Kendall Monette. Each week, we bring you stories that keep you up to speed and connected to the world around you. We give you news that matters so you don't feel so dumb around your smart friends. This week, we talk about solutions to homelessness with Celeste Eggert of an organization called The Road Home. She's been helping people get out of homelessness for nearly 20 years. But first, let's go over the headlines. So last week, Kendall, the oldest person alive turned 117. Very nice. Yeah, she's an Italian lady named Emma Murano. Um, and she was actually, um, she's the only person alive born in the 1800s. She was born in 1899. Um, and so she's lived in three different centuries. Um, and so for her birthday, they celebrated by playing like three different centuries of genres. <laughs> Which, I mean, your playlist is unlimited there. <laughs> Quite yeah. broad. Um, I don't know what they got from, I don't think they got any like live recordings from the 1800s, but, well, actually, you know, Thomas Edison, yeah, maybe. Anyway, um, so I was looking at who the oldest people were. Um, the oldest ever was 122, and, and uh, Emma Murano's the oldest living right now, uh, but she's number six on the list of oldest ever. Um, I, I noticed that the top 10 were all women, the top 20. We're all women. Yeah. I don't know why. But. Well, how did she do it? I mean, that's always the question. How uh, yeah, yeah. people were saying, like, cause I, like, yeah, what's your secret? Okay, here, here are a few things she said. Um, she says, I eat two eggs a day, and that's it, and cookies. But I don't eat much because I have no teeth. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, another thing she said, um, staying single... <laughs> Um, she actually was married, but it, it was actually a pretty bad marriage. Um, another one, um, oh, going to bed early. Yeah. I'm going to die early. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, I'm so bad at this one. Um, she's never used drugs. She said that. Um, <laughs> and she she also has said, you know, part of her solution is uh, her homemade brandy that she has once in a while. <laughs> um, maybe alive despite that i don't know um she's obviously not an alcoholic so um and she has occasional chocolate um but she said the biggest thing is she thinks positive positively about the future is that like her future or the future of the world or i, I know because her future like for me i'm like oh you know 50 years from now i don't think she's talking 50 years yeah. in the future <laughs> yeah oh that's amazing yeah 17 well, happy birthday. Yeah, and she and I saw her picture. She doesn't look that bad. I mean, she looks like somebody in her 90s, but she's doing all right. Looking great. Awesome. So um, I decided I would slip a quick little political update. I know that most people are pretty sick of political news, but there's still a lot happening, and we'll just do two stories in one real quick just to... Um, Get it out of the way. Yeah, don't so apologize story, for politics. It's not going away anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely... Maybe we'd rather talk about, you know, urinals and stuff, but that's okay. We'll, we need to feed what's going on around the world. Yeah. 
the first little bit um, that a lot of people found interesting was last week um, Marine General James Mad Dog Mattis um, was announced to be very likely to be the next Secretary of Defense. So the Secretary of Defense, for those who don't know, is the head of the DOD, the D- Department of Defense, and he's kind of the main man at the Pentagon. So the DOD, Department of Defense, has over 3 million military and civilian employees, so that's everyone in the military and then all, all of the support personnel. So they have a huge budget. General Mattis is well-loved. He's a Marine. He's fiercely loyal, and he has good administration skills. Um, in 2013, he stepped down as the head of U.S. Central Command, so um, his experience in CENTCOM counts for a lot. But the biggest thing that people love about him are the countless stories and quotes that just define such a personality. I'll just read a few of them. Okay. I, I couldn't get enough of these, but I just thought we could include a few of these. A lot of these are his statements to enemies. He says, I'm going to plead with you. Do not cross us, because if you do, the survivors will write about what we do here for 10,000 years. What? (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Kind of intimidating. It's quotable. Okay. Yeah. So another quote was, I come in peace. I didn't bring artillery, but I'm pleading with you with tears in my eyes. If you blank with me, I'll kill you all. (laughs) (laughs) Mess with me. That's what he said. Right. If you mess with me. Right. And then to uh, to the, his fellow Marines, demonstrate to the world there is no better friend, no worse enemy than a U.S. Marine. Uh, so um, I have to admit some bias here. My granddad is a Marine, and then my um, grandpa on my father's side was also in the military. He was in the Air Force. And so I come from kind of, like most people, a hybrid military and civilian family. And I take a lot of pride in, in that heritage, and I... Um, I think it's it's always a popular thing to support the troops and um, try to find people that will do a good job by them. So a lot of people are really excited about Mattis. A lot of people really respect him and and love him as as a leader. So yeah, um, we'll we'll see how things go there with his confirmation proceedings. Well, and that's kind of that kind of is controversial because they have to make an exception for him. I I didn't realize you're you're saying how much you like, you know. Uh, you're in a military family and people like that he's military but uh the typically for this uh, position you need to be out of the military for seven years and this right. you know and you he's said he's only he, been out for three or you know, i'm not sure how they count it but he doesn't qualify technically but they would just have to waive that exception and they could just waive rule yeah i guess apparently you could just await waive this uh rule of theirs but um seems like people like him yeah. so maybe that shouldn't be such a big deal yeah and he seems to be i mean a lot of people will look at somebody with a strong military background and say oh he's a warmonger but a lot of people will say the opposite he seems like the kind of person who will not go into a fight as the first option but if he does he will win you know and uh that's that's a good thing for a military person to to do so yeah um, we'll see how the how the confirmation goes with him, and it will be announced today. It's Monday, and uh, um, Trump unofficially announced it last week, but the, the official announcement. He said, "Don't tell anybody at his rally," and of course, that was all over the radio. And uh, sure enough, uh, it'll it should officially happen today. Yeah. 
The only other um, political story I had real quick was the carrier bailout controversy. So carrier is an air conditioning company in Indiana, I believe, that Trump has given special tax incentive to in order to save jobs. So the people on the left think it's a bad thing because, well, because Trump is doing it. (laughs) No kidding. And the people on the right actually also think it's a bad thing because it's a special deal for just one company. Um, Tax incentives are good, but this isn't fair to other companies, other competitors. It shows favoritism. And in the words of Sarah Palin, actually, it's crony capitalism. So for those who followed the campaign this past year, Sarah Palin was actually one of the early and strong Trump supporters. But um, even, even people as far right as her are calling Trump out on this, that this this isn't how we do things. We want, if we're going to do tax incentives, we give it to everybody. We level the playing field. But, um, yeah, interesting controversy there, and some might say maybe this is to distract from other things that are going on. So it's kind of like the um, no-burning-the-American-flag tweet that we oh, heard yeah. about earlier. That was kind of generally seen as a distraction from other cabinet appointments. So... Interesting strategies going on. Um, I know not everyone loves the play-by-play, but I really enjoy it. So, Yeah, um, even though the dust hasn't settled, a lot's going on here. And uh, yeah, and maybe something like this, this, this bailout um, is, you know, it's symbolic of, you know, this is what I really believe. But yeah, like you said, that could be an issue when it's just singling out one person. Yeah. So recently there's been a big breakthrough for greenhouse emissions, and it's to do with cows. Um, and as you know, uh, greenhouse emissions, yes, they come from cars, you know, give off CO2 and things like that. But cows burp methane, and that actually is a serious problem. Um, uh, so is it... Is it that they burp it and it's coming out of that end? Or oh, so, okay. And no, I'm ready to answer this question. So 90% of it is actually burping, and then the other 10%, I guess, is, you know, the farting. So I, I did not know that. Um, so it's mostly burping, um, and this is due to, like, the chemical reaction that happens when they chew grass. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, they that's two to 500 liters a day, but let's kind of put that in perspective um, 14.5% of human-caused greenhouse gases are from livestock, and 65% of that are cows. So, um, so yeah, everything we put in the atmosphere, 14.5% of that is livestock. That's big because that's more than car and airplane traffic put together. Really? Wow. Now, this isn't, and, and I, I'm afraid a lot of people, like, say, a lot of people have used the cows as, like, a cop-out for, like, you know, saying like, you know, cows are worse than cars, so we shouldn't worry about climate change. But I mean, we, we ought to worry about both. Um, this is, this is a serious issue. Um, and we put a lot, you know, America puts a lot of cows out there because we love our beef. And scientists yeah. at Carnegie Institute for Science said that eating a pound of beef causes more greenhouse warming than that of burning a gallon of gasoline. So for times that by a million for the U.S., um, you could save you know a million gallon, gallons of gasoline by people going you know vegetarian, <laughs> as far as beef goes. So so 
but let's talk about the solution that just came out. Um, ca- uh, scientists found that if they add a little seaweed to the cow's diet of grass, um, and only like 2% of their eating, if they make it seaweed, um, it cuts down methane emissions by 99% from wow. cow- from cows. So this is big. Um, I feel like this is something that humans would have done for themselves years ago, but <laughs> since the cows can't talk, they just haven't been able to tell us, hey, can you fix this burping problem we have? <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I guess it does a different chemical reaction, um, and uh, I don't think it bothers the cows, Kendall, but... I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, you never know. Yeah, it, it's kind of like a natural gas X, you know, for cows. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, way to keep the uh, streak of potty humor going. I, I, I guess I broke a threshold. Uh, I broke the barrier, you know, just a few weeks ago when we had the urinal podcast. Um, if our, you know, if our listeners are offended by that, um, I apologize. Um, maybe I don't. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. <laughs> Well, that said, let's uh, move on to our more user-friendly main story. Um, We had the opportunity to interview Celeste Eggert, and um, we'll just dive right into the interview. Celeste Eggert is a director of development at an organization called The Road Home. She's joining us now over the phone to talk about the issue of homelessness. Celeste Eggert, welcome to Ununinformed. Thank you so much. I appreciate being on. Um, so just give us a little background of your organization. You work for uh, The Road Home. What what do you do and what is what is your role in the organization? Uh, so The Road Home, we are the largest provider of emergency shelter for homeless individuals and families in the state of Utah. But we actually do a lot more than shelter. Uh, most people, when they think of The Road Home, they just think of um, emergency shelter. But we also... Um, do a lot of other services, such as uh, we have case management services that help connect clients to community resources, things like helping them find mental health treatment or substance abuse treatment. Um, We also um, have a growing housing program, and on any given night, um, the Road Home has more people in our housing programs than our shelter programs. And really, for us, our primary focus is on housing because housing is the solution to ending homelessness. I am the director of development. So um, my team uh, coordinates all the volunteers for the agency. We're responsible uh, for raising the private contributions for the agency, and we oversee all the marketing and public relations. Fantastic. So, um, So you guys are one of the big hitters in Utah. So what is the current state of homelessness in Utah and in the U.S. in general? Um, Unfortunately, in Utah and across the nation, um, homelessness continues to grow. Um, The point-in-time count, uh, which is done nationwide in in each state um, across the nation, estimates that there will be over 14,000 people in uh, the course of the year in Utah who will become homeless. Um, Most of those folks, unfortunately, will become homeless across the Wasatch Front. Um, So we are definitely seeing an increase um, in homelessness in Utah. 
uh, as well as in other cities across the nation. Uh, for our facility alone, this past fiscal year, we've experienced a 20, uh, excuse me, a 12% increase in the overall number of people turning to our shelter facilities over the previous year. So it is, um, unfortunately, a growing problem. And again, you can directly correlate a lot of the, the issue to the need for deeply affordable housing. As housing becomes more and more challenging and more out of reach for people, we're going to continue, unfortunately, in our communities to see more people falling into homelessness. Wow. So you mentioned the difference between housing and shelter, and we've heard a lot of good news out of Salt Lake City that um, the city really stands out in their efforts to combat homelessness. What what are, exactly are those processes and practices, and can those be replicated elsewhere? Um, so a lot of the national uh, news coverage that Utah has received is around the um, area of chronic homelessness. So just to clarify a bit, our shelter population really falls into what we call two categories. The first category is roughly 87 to 90% of our, pop- our shelter population. And they are, they, they are what we call our short-term shelter stayers. So the vast majority of people who come through our emergency shelters at the road home will stay for a period of usually three to four months or less, and they will not return to the shelter system. But about 10 to 12% of our population are what we call chronic. These are folks who have uh, mental health issues, substance abuse issues, physical health issues, often a combination of all of the above. And the shelter tends to become their a permanent housing destination. It's not by choice necessarily. It's more by circumstance. These are folks that are dealing with some really complex, challenging issues. They're some of the most distressed people that we see in our community. And it is very hard for them to find housing out in the community. And so as a community, as a, as a county, as a city, as a state, Utah has really made an emphasis over the last decade or more to focus on that that 10 to 12 percent of the population, that chronic population, and we've made great strides. And really, why we focus on that that small percent is for a few reasons. One, housing's always better than shelter. It's always better. Shelters are better than the street, but housing's better than shelters. Um, you cannot. I can't emphasize to you the therapeutic value. I can't emphasize enough the therapeutic value of a home. People do better in a home. Uh, we see time and time again folks that have are dealing with really complex issues, trauma in their lives, mental health issues, and we get them into housing, and for the first time in their lives, they stabilize. Wow. Um, so that is an important reason. Um, I think just people do better when they have a space of their own, and and it gives them pride in something, and it gives them ownership. And the third and really the most important reason that we focus on this this chronic cohort is because if we can get one chronically homeless person out of the shelter and into housing, the bed that they're using in the course of a year at our shelter, we can serve really anywhere from 1 to 11 of that other 90% that I was telling you about. So it's creating greater capacity for us without building a bigger shelter. It creates greater outflow for us. So as a community, 
we've done some really great things. We've, we've developed um, some great housing projects, including um, Sunrise Metro, Grace Mary Manor, Palmer Court. These are permanent supportive housing units for people that are in that chronic cohort. Um, oftentimes, they have supportive services on site. Uh, they might have a mental health therapist on site or case management on site. Um, but what we find is these folks, with, with just a little bit of assistance, they they do really well. They thrive, and they don't come back into the sheltering system. Wow. So na- nationally, we've gotten a lot of attention for that, and, and a lot of communities are replicating what's happening in Utah. We um, in Utah kind of went to other cities and looked at what they were doing and, and took bits and pieces of what they were doing and replicated it here. So it's not that we're the experts by any means. Um, it's just that we've looked at what other cities are doing and we've taken pieces and made them work for us. Um, and that's what other cities are doing as well. I think one of the things that's so um, remarkable about our efforts with chronic homelessness and why we've gotten so much attention is because of the collaboration, the collaboration between the nonprofits, between the government entities, the state, the city, the county. We really work together as a team. It's not just the road home or or just the state of Utah. It's really working in concert with one another, and I think that's why we've seen such success. And And I'm learning, talking to homeless service providers in other communities, it's not like that in other states. I was just going to ask, where does all that support come from? Because I guess to simplify, from what I've heard, how did they solve the homeless problem or how are they solving the homeless problem in Utah? Well, they're giving them homes, but obviously that's a massive effort. So you think it comes down to coordination and collaboration? um, I, I would like to clarify one thing. We're not giving people homes. That's a very big misperception that people have that we're giving away homes. Clients, um, most of these units that, um, such as Palmer Court and Grace Mary Manor that I were, that I was referring to, they have what's called tenant-based rental, um, rental vouchers. And so there is a voucher tied to the unit, but the client pays 30% of their total income towards rent. So many clients that fall into that chronic category have a disabling condition and they do get disability income. Some folks that are chronically homeless work, but these folks are in fact paying rent. They are not, we're not giving away housing. And I think that's a a big misperception that we have. Clients are working hard to keep these, these housing units. They're, they're not just getting these for free. But as you said, it really does require great collaboration. Um, between the housing authorities, the nonprofits, the government entities. And like I said, we're really fortunate that we live in such a, a great community that collaborates so effectively. But there's still a lot of work to do, and we have not solved the issue of chronic homelessness. New people are falling into chronic homelessness every single day, and we still have a lot of work to do. We've had some successes. We're proud of those. But by no means have we solved the issue of chronic homelessness. Well, I kind of wanted to hear about the silver bullet, um, but obviously <laughs> there is none, I guess. Unfortunately, no. <laughs> um, but but you've uh, done fantastic things. Um, so th- this kind of uh, applies to a lot of other things. Um, a lot of people are worried about um, organizations that actually create a dependency. Um, 
it seems like your organization's done really well at not doing that. Um, so for organizations, whether it's homelessness or any kind of things that give back, try to uh, uh, eliminate poverty, what advice do you have for eliminating um, uh, more dependency on, on programs? For example, like for for you guys, how uh, what if uh, like people being uh, dependent on, oh, we're just going to get a house from these guys. So how how do you avoid that? Well, um, that, that is a big question. Um, <laughs> you know, oftentimes I say at the road home, we're a hand up, we're not a handout. Um, one of the things that I, I wish more people in the community understood was how hard our people work every single day to get out of homelessness. These folks that we serve are some of the strongest, most resilient people, um, and they're oftentimes facing great adversity and great challenges, and yet every day they get up and they fight their way out of homelessness. Um, I often hear people say, well, people choose to be homeless. I don't, I don't believe that. I believe that people resign themselves sometimes to the situation that they're in, and maybe they will say that they choose that because they're trying to claim some sort of power over what's happening to them. But I, I don't believe that people choose to be homeless. I think given the opportunity, anybody would choose to have a home over being homeless. But that's not always the, the, the case for people. And so sometimes they resign themselves to believe, oh, I, I choose this way. Um, so I, I don't, I guess in answer to your question, um, I, I, I don't think that it's that we are forcibly trying not to create dependency. I think people don't want to be dependent on us. Um, I, I think people really want to get out of the situation that they're in. I think they work really, really hard uh, to get out. But we also design our programs to assist folks to to get out of the shelter. Our Our housing team meets with our clients to ensure that they are finding housing opportunities out in the community. When I was talking about that chronic cohort just a little while ago, um, we've really changed how we we work with this population. And it used to be um, prior to uh, when we've adopted a housing first philosophy, which I'll talk about in a minute. Sure. Um, it used to be that we'd wait for clients to approach us about housing. Well, now we're being proactive in approaching clients about client about housing. We're not waiting for them to come to us. So we've adopted um, a nationally known best practice called Housing First. And basically the philosophy is let's get people into housing as quickly as we can and then address the issues that have led to homelessness in the first mm -hmm. place. And we find that, that people do better. When I first started the shelter 19 years ago, it, we didn't have that philosophy. And it used to be that people were staying in the shelters for very long periods of time, and we believed they had to jump through all these hoops before we could put them out into housing. They had to get a job. They had to save money. And our shelters had waiting lists, and people were staying in the shelter um, longer than they do now. And so it really has, has flipped that philosophy. I wonder, back to what we kind of talked about in the beginning, are there any specific cases with clients that stand out to you in your memory, whether it's recent or ones that over the years have always just stood out to you? You know, 
what I, I get asked this um, frequently, and I, I often return to this one client um, that I've known for the, the past 19 years that I've, I've been at the shelter. Um, she came to the shelter. She was actually in our family shelter um, when she was a kid. And um, her mom and dad, unfortunately, were struggling with some um, addiction issues and some mental health issues. And uh, she and her sister and her mom and dad ended up coming to our family shelter. Um, she was probably, uh, I want to say, about 12 at the time. Uh, and I, I used to do um, a group of the teens who lived in the shelter. I would take them out once a week um, to go see a movie or go play basketball or things like that. And I, I really got to know this young lady. And... Over the years, I just watched her blossom. Her family eventually moved into one of our housing programs, um, and they stabilized. And I, I kept in touch with this young lady, which I don't usually do with clients. And it's been about 19 years now, and she's doing great. She is married um, herself. She has a full-time job. She and her husband live in a house. Uh, they have two kids. She calls me probably three times a year and gives me an update on how they're doing. Um, she herself never fell into the addiction area like her parents. Unfortunately, her parents are still struggling with addiction issues, um, and they have not been able to, to solve that problem. But, you know, she's just a great example. I think that um, homelessness doesn't have to define the rest of your life. And, you know, despite having a, a very chaotic and challenging childhood, she's grown into a very stable, responsible adult. And, um, and, and I just, I think that's really remarkable. And I'm constantly in awe of her and the successes that she's had. That's so cool. Now, homelessness has been on my mind for a, a long time, and especially as I just recently moved to uh, Salt Lake where I, where I saw a lot more than where I was living before. Um, mm -hmm. And so this is kind of on a personal level. Uh, what do you, what should I do about panhandlers? Cause sometimes I, sometimes I've given them money. Sometimes I've given them a granola bar. Uh, uh, and sometimes I've just said, maybe not this time. What, uh, is a granola bar okay? Is money bad? What do you say about, about all of that? You know, I it's I really I get asked this often, and I I say it's I think it's a personal choice. Um, I had a coworker recently really open my eyes um, to a different perspective on panhandling, but my philosophy had always been. I don't want to necessarily support individual panhandlers because there's always that question mark. What are they going to use the money for? Um, and so I chose to donate to charities instead um, because I knew then that that way it would go to, and it wouldn't, it doesn't have to be the road home. It could be any charity, but that way I, I would know that it would go to those most in need. But I had a coworker really open up my eyes and she said, you know, if you have an extra dollar, and that question mark doesn't bother you, why wouldn't you give to somebody? And so I think it's just a really personal choice. I think, um, you know, if it, if it feels right for you and it's something you want to do, do it. If, it. if you have that question mark really bothers you and you want to know 
specifically what that money's going for, then you probably want to donate directly to a charity. So it's really, I think it's up to the individual person. Fantastic. And maybe uh, while you're at it, give us uh, some ideas on what normal citizens can do. Um, obviously, donate to an organization um, and or perhaps tell us how we can do- help out with your organization or what needs what normal citizens can do in general. Um, the nice thing about living in Utah is we have so many great charities. Um, we really do. Uh, and so, you know, oftentimes people will say, well, I don't know which charity I should give to. There's great resources out there like um, Charity Navigator looks at, um, they do ratings on charities looking at um, percentage of costs that go directly to programs and services versus administrative costs and they'll, they'll rate charities and um, that way you can do that. Um, you, you can find out specific information about charities. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that you can do is, and you're doing it right now just by talking to me is learn more about the issue. Um, One of the things that we like to do at the road home is we like to give tours of our facility and have people come down and and show them our facility and talk to them about who it is we serve, what the programs are that we offer. And there's many charities in town that do that as well. So Utah is actually number one in the country for volunteers. I don't know if a lot of people know that, but we have such amazing people in our community who give back and, Um, You know, volunteer at a homeless service provider. That's a great way to learn about more about the homeless population and more about the service providers. Um, I know at the Road Home, we have uh, weekly opportunities where you can have a set activity that you do and a set schedule every week. We also have one-time opportunities as well where you can come in with your church group or your family and you could do a movie night for the kids living in the family shelter or you could um, help sort donations in our warehouse. So volunteering is is really great. Um, and and like I said, I mean, I think what's wonderful is what you're doing right now is just taking the time to learn more about uh, the issue of homelessness in general. We're doing such a good job. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so fascinating. We are. We're a great state. <laughs> well, Celeste, we just admire you so much and and all your work and we have so much respect for what you do thanks so much for talking with us and we just wonder is there anything in closing that you'd like to say um i would just say well first off thank you for having me i really appreciate it um i i would i would just say um you know we live in a a pretty remarkable community and a, a pretty remarkable state and we're very fortunate. Um, there's a lot of great people out there. And, and the road home truly could not exist without wonderful community support, whether it's in terms of financial resources or in-kind donations or volunteerism. So um, I just want to say thank you to, to people out there who support the road home, who are listening. Um, we greatly appreciate the support. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Celeste, for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, please leave a comment on our Facebook page or write us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. Our theme music is provided with permission from D.D. Dumbo. Check him out sometime. And thank you so much for listening. Your, your support keeps us going. We appreciate it. 
Um, this has been Un- Uninformed with Kendall Manette. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not Kendall Manette. This has been Un- Uninformed with Sean Seavey. And Kendall Manette. Don't forget to like our page on Facebook so you see every new episode. Or visit us at ununinformed.com. That's un-uninformed.com. Thanks, everybody.